Hi, good afternoon, and welcome to CIO Leadership Live. I'm Mary Fran Johnson, your host for today's broadcast, and also the CEO of Mary Fran Johnson Media. We produce CIO Leadership Live with the generous support of my colleagues at CIO.com and the CIO Executive Council. We're streaming live right now to you via LinkedIn and Twitter, and we welcome anyone who has joined us for the stream today to join the conversation with questions of your own for my guest. We'll be watching for those questions and passing them along to our, uh, to our guest today. Uh, my guest is, and our CIO that we're featuring is Andy Rhodes, who is the Chief Information Officer of UNICEF USA. Andy is responsible for this humanitarian organization's technology, digital, and data transformation, as well as ensuring the secure and ethical use of its systems and data for the benefit of children around the world. The United Nations Children's Fund is a globally respected humanitarian aid organization working in more than 190 countries, including many of the world's toughest places to survive. Protecting the world's most vulnerable children is a core UNICEF mission, and that means delivering everything from healthcare and immunizations to nutrition, safe water, sanitation, basic education, and emergency relief. Before Andy joined UNICEF USA, which is headquartered in New York City, he spent 30 years in the commercial private sector, holding IT leadership roles at the USGA, Publicis, and Mattel. Prior to that, he consulted on e-commerce and marketing systems and a lot of data warehousing with global organizations such as Nike, Vitorinox, Singapore Airlines, and Estee Lauder. Andy currently also serves as the president of the board of directors for Providence House, which is one of New York City's most success successful social service programs. Andy, it's a pleasure to have you here today. Thanks for joining me. Hi, Mary Fran. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. Excellent. Let's start out where I feel like we always start out now where we all live in the midst of the COVID crisis. And I wanted you to talk a little bit about the impact of that on both UNICEF USA and the broader landscape of other humanitarian organizations like yours. Well, you know, I think like everyone, uh, our workforce was impacted uh, by uh, COVID-19. Uh, we had, uh, we were the first on the ground in China, so we had a little bit of a heads up as to what was coming our way. Um, we were also involved, obviously, in Italy and Spain and saw some of the output, the outcomes that, that were occurring there. So, um, you know, we knew that this was something we had to get ready for. Um, we, we closed our offices in early March and uh, sent everybody home to work from home. Mm -hmm. uh, we spent a great deal of time making sure that our staff was safe and comfortable, mm -hmm. uh, that they had uh, what they needed in order to keep themselves safe and comfortable and keep their family safe and comfortable. Um, and uh, we went to work making sure that they then had the tools to be able to continue to do the work that was, uh, has never been more necessary than it is uh, right now. Well, that's, that's so true. I, I was, when we were talking before the broadcast here, I was mentioning a statistic that I saw that children are often the forgotten victims uh, around the world in this, and that the children living in poverty has soared to over a billion now, a 15% increase in just six months. Yeah, that's it. that's exactly right, and, and and their access to education is severely impacted now. So there's there's you know this the the work that organizations like UNICEF and uh, and other organizations do has never never been more important. 
Yeah. Well, tell us more about how and where UNICEF USA fits into that global organization, and uh, especially in terms of the importance that the USA division or, or part of the organization has on funding. So, so UNICEF USA is what's called a national committee. Uh, there are 38 national committees uh, that make up the UNICEF uh, National Committee family, if you will. Um, and predominantly, our job um, is threefold. Uh, number one is fundraising. Uh, uh, number two is education. We want to educate uh, the American public about the plight of children around the world. Um, and number three is advocacy. We want to advocate for uh, children's best interests around the world. And in the U.S., we, uh, we actually spend a great deal of time um, advocating on children's behalf in the U.S. to get uh, uh, laws changed, for example, around uh, child marriage is something we've worked on um, in order to uh, ensure that, uh, that kids in the U.S. Have, have the best outcomes as well. Um, we also have a collection of volunteers. Uh, we have a collection of high school and college clubs in the USF or in the USA that do uh, that sort of work for us as well. So um, it's it's really multifaceted. You know, it's advocating and, and making folks in the US aware of the plight of children and, and generating um, funds from folks like you and me, from corporate partners, from foundations, um, people who care about the uh, you know kids around the world want want to help. Yeah. Well, and I, how has the, in terms of fundraising since the pandemic hit, what has, what has that been like for UNICEF? Well, you know, there were a couple of impacts. Um, number one, uh, we do uh, a great deal of our fundraising face-to-face, uh, -face, uh, meeting with, with folks like you and me um, to, to explain the work that UNICEF does and, and, and uh, uh, find avenues for folks to help, whether it's uh, individuals or corporations or, or foundations. Uh, so we've had to move a lot of that and actually all of that to, to digital means, to things like this, um, to, you know, to, to, to Zoom meetings uh, in large part. Mm -hmm. um, we also, though, do a great deal of digital fundraising um, and direct mail fundraising. And uh, we've uh, indexed heavily on that this year because, you know, that's a way that we can continue to have this relationship and, and get people access to stories and content that, that are meaningful to them um, so that they, uh, they can continue to engage with, with the organization. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and, and I must say, the American public has been amazing. Um, we actually uh, finished our last fiscal year with, uh, with a record year of fundraising. Um, the American public has really responded to the needs of, of kids that, that we serve. So we're... Uh, we're, we're excited and we're optimistic that, you know, we're going to be able to continue to do the, the work that we do. Yeah, excellent. Well, and I know we're going to talk a lot more about the particulars of your digital transformation. That was essentially what the UNICEF, the hiring committee, had in mind when they brought you on. It was April of 2018, so it's been about two and a half years for you. Um, that's always a big ramp up time for new CIOs, isn't it? You know, because you've got your... It's not so much a hundred days agenda as that first two to three years you can get so much accomplished. Um, to segue into that, let's talk about your IT group, the size and the scope of it, and how you've managed this pivot to working from home. So we are a uh, small, lean, but powerful team of, uh, of up 20 people yep. uh, that, that serves the organization, uh, uh, roughly broken up into three groups. We have, a, we have a digital team that manages all of our digital properties and works with our, our digital marketing teams. Uh, to, to manage uh, you know, our web, mobile, and social properties. We have a, we have a data team 
Um, and the data team is collecting data about all those engagements, those digital engagements, and even those, those personal engagements when, you know, when we had them, um, and helping our fundraisers uh, get, uh, you know, get smarter about, uh, about you know, who, what, what a profile of our best advocate is or our best donor and, and, and help them find, find more. And then we have our operations team, uh, infrastructure operations security, uh, which handles uh, the, the more traditional aspects of, of, of IT, you know, office IT, end user computing, uh, security, and, and, and those sorts. So, um, you know, the, the pivot for us um, to working remotely, um, thankfully, started two and a half years ago when I joined the organization. Mm-hmm. One, of, one of the things that I wanted to do was make sure that that our folks had the best tools that that we could afford, um, that um, that were right, you know, fit fit for us, um, and that would enable them to do the the, the amazing work they do to you know to reach the uh, our, our fans and our donors and our supporters. Yeah. So you know that digital transformation served us well as as uh, when we had to pivot. We were mostly um, at that point cloud based. So we uh, we had we had predominantly um, moved our, our applications, both our business applications and, and, and our fundraising applications into the cloud over the past few years. And that allowed us to operate uh, pretty seamlessly remotely. Um, it was part of a plan to create a, a, a remote and agile workforce. Um, we just didn't know that it was going to have to be activated so quickly and, and uh, on this scale. But, but so far, so good. Well, I've talked to so many CIOs who had uh, projects like that underway, like you were a good way through a cloud migration. <clears throat> but the thinking was it was going to take another year or two before everybody got on board with things like, you know, maybe there was a new collaboration system that had a lot of video in it. And I've had so many of them say what we thought would take two years took two weeks. So that's been it, it shows the incredible adaptability of human beings, doesn't it? It, it does indeed. Let's talk a little bit more about what you were in the midst of uh, transferring over to, because I know you have an incredibly dedicated staff, as small as it is. Um, You had completed the migration to a new cloud ERP system, and then your digital marketing platform, which is probably your most important uh, organizational asset. They were both pretty well underway when the pandemic started. What What had to be done to finish them up? So we had those two enterprise class projects going on at the same time when the pandemic hit, and uh, we were about halfway through both of them. And, uh, you know, in the traditional sense, teams get together and, and you create conference rooms and war rooms and things like that, you know, and, and flip charts on the walls. Yeah. Right. All of that, you know, all of that goes away um, when you have to work remotely. So, um, you know, and great thanks to, to our partners, our implementation partners and our staff. Um, people found ways to get, you know, to do that kind of work remotely, um, leveraging, uh, you know, uh, mediums like this, um, lots of conference calls, lots of video calls, um, but both teams were able to uh, to get those projects uh, over the line in the middle of the pandemic, you know, while they were all managing their own lives um, in the middle of this. And um, I think, uh, so, you know, big, big thanks to our partners who, who helped us do that. Um, but the staff, our staff is incredibly resilient. One, one of the one of the great things about working for a for a, a cause-based organization is that people are generally here because they believe in the mission. 
and they believe in the cause. Yeah. And so that esprit de corps um, really helps uh, helps you get through the tough times. And these were really, you know, obviously very tough times. So um, our staff rallied, they stepped up, they knew the impact of, uh, you know, the work that we were going to, to be able to do once we put these new systems in. Um, and uh, you're right, the ERP system um, and the digital marketing system are, are in place. And uh, we're, you know, we're, we're starting that realization of benefit uh, phase now. So it's, it's very exciting. Good, good. Well, because I know one of the things we're going to talk about is the um, the Halloween angle that we have on our call today about the UNICEF digital trick-or-treating. Um, I've already been on the site and I sent a link and a picture to my son who's got three little girls under the age of 10. And I think that, I think they're going to be all over that. But we're going to come back to that. In the meantime, I wanted to um, follow up on uh, something you told me earlier that you're already beginning to implement the kind of changes you need to eventually bring people back into the workplace. What is that going to look like? You said you mentioned modifications to the technology, the process, and the workspaces. So, so it's all three of those things. And, and some of those you know, modifications, obviously, we had to put in place as we began you know, uh, our, our work from home policy. Um, but we know that coming back to the workspace is going to be very different. You know, distance is going to be important. Capacity management is, is going to be very important. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and even just managing the, the flow around the office is going to be important. So um, we're working with our facilities teams uh, right now to, to map out what that's going to look like. Um, but, you know, suffice to say, it'll be a, a, a limited number of people in the office at the same time so that we can, you know, have, have safe and effective distancing um, that, that's required. Um, so we're looking at, at uh, scheduling systems uh, to be able to schedule, uh, allow people to schedule when they want to come into the office or if they need a room. Um, it'll be interesting, right? Conference rooms may not be in, in demand anymore as they once were um, because, you know, uh, the ability to put a number of people in a room is probably going to um, uh, be limited for, for the time being. Um, but we want to make sure that uh, people have, uh, you know, have the right equipment to be able to you know, teleconference, even if they're across the, you know, across the floor from each other. Um, that may be the way that, that people will have to get together. Um, and, and part of that is just, you know, making sure that, that people feel, uh, feel comfortable and safe. We, we've made the decision that, um, you know, we'll, we'll, we're not uh, returning to the office um, until uh, next spring. However, um, we know that there will be some people that, uh, for various reasons, will need to come into an office or maybe want to because they don't uh, have a you know, great space to work at home. We want to accommodate that. Right. So we'll, you know, in limited fashion over through the course of the spring, we'll start allowing people to, to, to come back to work. In yeah. The have you have you given much thought to or talked with other uh, the CIOs you know about the things that will be permanently changed by this? I, I don't think I've I've talked with a CIO in the last six months who believes that we'll be a hundred percent back to the way things were ever. That this is going to have some really lasting and permanent changes, probably many of them for the good in terms of the flexibility of where we work and all. Are you pretty much in that camp as well? I, I am definitely, and and, and I think as, as part of the leadership team, we've had quite a bit of conversation about that. That that uh, you know uh, we we believe that that we have a workforce that has the resilience and the ability to continue to work in a you know in, in a variety of places and circumstances. So um, we're you know we're going to be comfortable enabling that. Um, but at the same time, there you know there are aspects of of the job which are important. The face to face sort of contact is important. One of the things that comes to mind is when you bring junior staff on board. 
Um, and, you know, for a junior staff member to have the ability to sit in a conference room and watch how senior leaders behave and act in a conference room um, and how they carry themselves in public and those sorts of things. Um, aside from the technical skills, there are those social skills, those corporate social skills you learn by being around, you know, other people and other leaders that I learned a great deal from, you know, as I was coming up through the ranks, if you will. So um, I'm not sure that we have an, anybody has an idea how to solve for that. But that's sort of on the, one of the concerns that I have, and I think a lot of us have, is how do we how do we enable the creation of those social corporate social skills that, that happen um, through through face to face interaction? That's a great point. I've seen a few articles where you know the headlines are things like, "Have we all lost our social skills in the last six months?" You know, do we? You know, especially and and I think for IT people who are largely they're deeper thinkers and introverts to begin with. A lot of them have engineering backgrounds and systems backgrounds, and they really never saw themselves as, you know, marketing and sales extroverted types of people. Uh, that And a lot of times those articles have been authored by people who are saying, wow, what's going to happen to the abilities that I had developed about making idle chit chat and that sort of thing. Um, one of the uh, things you had mentioned that you're doing like as a CIO to kind of alleviate the stress and to encourage more of this relaxed social interaction, you mentioned you're beyond the bubbler program. Talk about that a little bit. We, we, have, we have a great uh, people team. Our chief people officer and his staff have done a really great job of coming up with ways to recreate that that uh, water cooler situation, if you will, where some of the best decisions get made, it seems, um, but certainly some of the best relationships get built. And they've created this program called Beyond the Bubbler, mm -hmm. where uh, uh, people will come together for 30 minutes, and it's 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 an invitation to anybody in the organization to participate. Um, the uh, people team will have a series of table topics, if you will, and then randomly assign the folks who have joined to breakout rooms. Um, yep. And in the rooms, those folks are um, uh, asked to discuss the table topic. It, and it could, it's, it's fun things. It's interesting topics. Um, but the idea is to kind of create that getting to know uh, you opportunity that you miss when you're, when you're not in the office. So, um, you know, we have, we have, uh, we also have created, um, uh, working groups that, that get together to talk about being a, being a parent and homeschooling or, or caring for uh, an elderly family member who's in the home. Yeah. Um, we've tried to create those, uh, even exercises there's, you know, there are exercise groups that, that the people team have, have, uh, created. Um, so, you know, we're trying to find ways to recreate those, those great experiences that happen whenever you do have you know face-to-face -face contact that are so important to the fabric of an organization yeah well i think that's great and even if there's no way to replicate the actually being there in person experience just the fact that uh senior leaders are making the effort i think counts for a lot um and let me just stop for a moment and say if you're just joining us now on our as we are live streaming onto linkedin and twitter i'm mary fran johnson and i'm here with andy rhodes who is the cio of unicef usa and what we're going to talk about uh in our remaining time here are lots of ways that the job of cio is adapting in our post-pandemic world and we also have a, a special treat. We're going to talk about trick-or-treating and Halloween and what UNICEF is, how they've taken that whole process digital. So if you're joining us and you have any questions for Andy, please go ahead and input those. We have an editor watching them and we'll pass them along. 
Um, I keep using that Halloween teaser. I'm not ready to get to it quite yet. I wanted to ask you about overall priorities as a CIO in the when you and you have to cast your mind back six to eight months to now. What shifted up and down on your own strategic list of the things that you're paying attention to? Because a lot of a lot of times CIOs can tick off right away the top three things that they're watching. And usually it's cybersecurity and data and some sort of, you know, like um, trying to recruit new staff. What's what are some of those top items on your list these days? Well, well cybersecurity, as you said, is always on the list, but it's at the top of the list right now. The, the fact that, you know, the fact that we have a, a workforce working from home on a network that uh, that we can't control, um, the, despite the fact you know we have them working on on secure devices, um, it still creates a certain amount of risk that that uh, we uh, you know had had occasionally we'd have you know, obviously people occasionally working from home, but now you have it in mass, so um, that creates a whole uh, new set of opportunities for you know for the bad guys. So. Um, we've really focused a lot on security awareness training, even more so than we might have, um, mm -hmm. you know, at this time of year, um, and making folks aware of, of, you know, how to, how to be, be safe at home when, in, in a, in, in a cyber world. Um, and we pay a lot of attention to that and talk a lot about that in, in all aspects of, of the technology department, no matter what the projects are going on, you know, what projects are, are, are executing at the moment. Mm -hmm. Um, so that's always top of mind, but I think as we look forward and we think about engaging with our constituents um, digitally uh, for, you know, probably for, for quite some time, um, you know, we're really looking at what are the tools that we can we can invest in or build or borrow or, or you know, acquire that are going to continue to build, allow us to build those relationships with our constituents. You know, one, one of the, the, um, the things that we will lose this year is our ability to have our, our balls and our galas, which are great, great experiences for our, our supporters, and our donors to come and experience the UNICEF brand and celebrate the work that, that UNICEF does. So we're looking at ways we can we can uh, we can supplement that or you know uh, with uh, with some digital experiences and and we had a we had a digital um, a telethon if you will earlier in the year that that was uh, very well received and we're looking for um, other opportunities to do that throughout the year. Um, the business that we're in in the U.S. is is engaging with supporters and donors, so it's really trying to figure out you know what are some ways we can continue to to maintain uh, those relationships with our fans. Right. Well, and this does seem like a perfect segue into talking about Halloween and digital trick-or-treating. Um, tell, tell us about that program and uh, how it's doing. So this is the 70th anniversary of the UNICEF's trick-or-treat program. We, we've been, yeah, we've been trick-or-treating for UNICEF for 70 years now. Folks probably remember the little orange boxes. Um, I certainly do. That was my first introduction to UNICEF, uh, you know, a long time ago. Wow. Um, and of course, this year, uh, Halloween's not going to be the same, but we didn't want to, to, to lose the opportunity to, to have kids participate in UNICEF's work through, through trick-or-treat. So, we have created a virtual trick-or-treat program. Uh, you, can, you can go online and find it at, at trickortreatforunicef.org. Mm -hmm. And this allows uh, kids and their parents and family members to, to create their own custom, almost peer-to-peer -peer fundraising approach where they can get a custom QR code and a custom URL that they can then share with their friends and families um, that allows them to, to trick or treat safely and to uh, have a virtual, virtual trick or treat party, Halloween party, and, and you know, ask for contributions um, at the party. There's any number of ways that, 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 that 
folks can engage with with the program. But we're we're really excited about it. Um, we've we've had a, a very successful program um, through our through schools um, called Kid Power that has uh, allowed kids to participate in in uh, activities that earn them uh, digital coins, if you will, or virtual coins that they can then um, uh, apply to uh, uh, to causes that are important to them and that we support. We're doing the same thing with with uh, virtual Halloween. So in, in addition to being able to raise funds for uh, for uh, trick-or-treat in the normal way. Um, you For every activity you do, uh, garners you points and it allows you to use those points to direct um, your interest towards uh, a fund or, or towards a, 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 an outcome, um, whether it's nutrition or sanitation or wash um, that, uh, that you wanna participate in that's important to you. So the idea is to give kids a chance to have some agency over, um, over the solutions as well. Yeah, well, and I, I like, cause when you go to the website and of course, orange is heavily figured as the color on there and in these great big shouting all caps it says halloween is not canceled it's just going to look a little different this year can you do you have any initial can you share any numbers or fundraising amounts or anything that it has raised uh, so far or compare with other years i mean you mentioned this is a very big and popular program how big does it get you know it's um the 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 popularity is is significant and and already so so normally we don't start to see those funds roll in until after halloween after you've gone out and trick or treated right and then you you know, you come back home and 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 submit the funds, uh, but we're already starting to see funds come in, which is exciting. Um, so uh, we we we're very confident that it's going to be a successful year for us. And um, you know, as important as as are the funds, is that it just continues to raise awareness of of UNICEF and 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 the work that UNICEF does. And that's that's uh, in some ways um, you know more important than than the funds we generate. The funds are important; it's necessary. But um, the more people that know about the work we do, the better. Um, and it could be because it helps everybody. Right. Well, we have a question from our attentive uh, listening and watching audience here um, about how you collaborate with your peers in the other countries. Do you all do you have a regular Zoom call with the other CIOs? What are what are you guys doing these days, uh, guys and gals? Hopefully, uh, I imagine it's a very diverse group of CIOs. How do you collaborate? It, it's a very diverse group. It's very exciting to, to, to get to know them and, and work with them and understand, you know, what their challenges are. And we do uh, try to help each other a great deal. Um, you know, uh, uh, a lot of the conversations happen through relationships that have just been built over the years. Uh, and it's it's uh, it's informal, but we also do have formal regular get togethers. In fact, we just had a, um, a, a technology operations and technology virtual get together, which we normally would have done physically, but we couldn't do. Um, but we spent three days together talking about the issues that, that all of us are facing um, in this in this COVID era, how we're responding, what's worked, what hasn't worked. Mm-hmm. So um, it's uh, it's a pretty good collection of people that are, you know, that, that, that come together. We probably come together a little bit more. More now because we're at home and we have Zoom and we have the time. So even ad hoc, I think we we actually probably chat you know a few more times than we might have otherwise. Yeah. Have you seen were there any action items or immediate benefits that came out of that? Kind of from your perspective. I, I think you know we're all um, we're all trying to do the same things. We're all you know we're all uh, trying to, to fundraise. We're trying to advocate and educate our, our populations about about the work that UNICEF does. Um, and one of the outcomes that that came from that is we talked about um, all of us talked about the things that we're doing um, in regards to digital 
and digital marketing, uh, for example, and how you know we've we've what we found to be successful as a pivot towards digital marketing and digital fundraising. Um, and uh, you know some countries are further along on that journey than others, and so those of us who've, who've you know made 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 that jump, um, we're more than happy to share the knowledge with others. Yeah, well, and and digital marketing and just the the underlying use of data in fundraising or you know in in attracting all sorts of attention has been something you've been involved with long before you came to UNICEF. Uh, UNICEF. Um, talk about you know that all that data at the core and what um, what you see as maybe some of the most important trends in digital marketing today. Well, you know, the, the, the great thing about being in digital is that every interaction is, is tracked and captured. And, and there's a tremendous amount of, of data that gets generated out of those interactions. And, um, you know, what we've been focusing on is, is using that to understand what is the profile of, of our best supporter, of our most interested person. You know, what is their age group? What is their geography? What, uh, what mediums do they like? What, uh, what messages do they really respond to? And uh, we've been uh, doing everything we can to pull that data together. We've, we've invested in a data warehouse um, platform that allows us to aggregate all of that data, um, uh, all, the, all of that unstructured data and turn that into meaningful insights. We, we work with a number of partners as well um, in our digital marketing space. Um, we do a great job of helping us hone in on that. Um, and and you know, we want to kind of paint that complete picture of a, of a donor or a supporter, whether they engage with us online, offline, through an event, through trick or treat, through Kid Power, any of our any you know, of our other programs that we have, um, it's it's about form, you know putting the audience member or putting you know putting the donor at the center and allowing them to engage with us in the way they find most meaningful and most impactful, and then understanding what those engagements are, what the outcomes were, and 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 creating more of those engagement opportunities. Yeah, well, that sounds so familiar. A lot of the CIOs I talk to have that customer at the center focus, and essentially the it, it's anyone in the world can be one of your customers, can't they? I mean, it's just anyone who's willing to donate. Exactly, and 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 advocate. You know, we we actually do a lot of uh, a lot of advocacy work, and we ask folks to write their congressperson about you know a, a particular law that's of interest to, um, to to helping children here in here in the U.S. So um, so we use digital channels not just for fundraising but also for advocacy and education. Of course. Uh, we have another question from our um, watching audience, and this one is about your cloud strategy. You'd already mentioned that you were in the midst of a cloud migration um, when the pandemic hit back in March. What is in uh, kind of overall terms? Talk about what your cloud strategy is. Are you an organization trying to head to eventually 100% cloud, or uh, how do you approach it as the CIO of UNICEF USA? So, so it's a great it's a great question. Um, you know, I in assessing who we are as an organization and what we need to to do and how we need to to do our work, um, I felt like that we could be um, a 100% cloud organization. Uh, we, you know, we do a lot of work or had been doing a lot of work, you know, um, uh, in, uh, in, in the field, if you will, in the U.S. of, you know, meeting, meeting with donors and meeting with supporters and meeting them where they are. Um, so I wanted us to be a collaborative, agile workforce, whether we were six feet away or 6,000 miles away from each other. Um, so, so the strategy that I put together was, was based on security, uh, mobility, 
um, and, and availability. So, um, you know, I wanted to make sure that, that all of the assets that folks needed in order to be successful could be, uh, could be uh, accessed from anywhere um, in, in the country, even in the world, um, if need be. And so that's led us down a path where uh, we are uh, very, very close to retiring um, you know, our, our, our on-premise and, and other data centers um, and fully being fully uh, migrated into the cloud. But that's going to give us that ability and that freedom to, 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 to be anywhere um, and you know, meet, our, meet our supporters and our donors where they are. Okay, excellent. When, we, when you think about the pandemic as kind of a long duration um, event, something that, you know, all that wishful thinking we all had last spring, uh, you know, has pretty much fizzled away. What do you think, what kind of issues does it pose for chief information officers specifically, um, you know, in your field and also in your experience in other parts of the commercial sector? How are you thinking about it differently now, the kind of the job of CIO? <laughs> I think even even more so, it's going to be about enablement, um, enabling our workforce to be successful in, in a in, in new new ways and new new spaces that we actually probably don't know what they are yet. Um, and so it's about creating the flexibility to be able to spin things up um, when the opportunities um, present themselves or when the needs present themselves. So I think I think more and, and I think this has been an evolution. I've talked about this um, you know, with with colleagues, you know, evolution in the last uh, you know, five to 10 years as, as CIOs. Uh, we've become uh, less builders and we've become more brokers of technology. Um, and so. Um, you know, I, my my goal is is to create foundational uh, foundational systems, foundational um, data points, uh, access access methods that allow us to bring the best tools to bear um, for for the staff and, and for the organization. Mm -hmm. um, and and so thinking less about you know building infrastructure than than enabling uh, tools and, and enabling opportunities. Mm-hmm. Excellent, excellent. Let's uh, we had. Um... We talked about UNICEF USA and the uh, Halloween angle, which is just so timely, and thank you for all of that. I wanted to talk about some of the other innovations that you've been able to drive with technology, um, where you are, especially on the leading edge with using drones for very, uh, very important deliveries of vaccines and other medicines around the world. Talk about your innovation fund, about the startups that you, you have already invested in in the drone space, and just overall give us, give us the whole 411 on the drones. The dr drones are, are a really exciting place for UNICEF to be right now. Mm -hmm. um, there are a number of organizations that have uh, come to us with ideas around um, using drones for a variety of use cases. In fact, um, there's a consortium of of of, uh, of of nonprofits NGOs that are working together to identify you know, what are the most critical things that we could potentially use a drone for, and at UNICEF we have an innovation fund where we seed fund organizations that are doing things that we believe can help solve some of the challenges that that we're facing, and one of them is is delivery, vaccine delivery, um, uh, which is which is obviously very timely. Um, and uh, we funded six uh, organizations now, seed funded six uh, drone based organizations to help uh, come up with solutions to, to, to some of those challenges. Uh, we also worked in Malawi to establish what we call a drone corridor. It's about a 5,000 square mile area where drones are able to operate unimpeded uh, up to about 400 meters above ground 
so that we can use that as a proving ground if you will, for some of these use cases and for some of these organizations that we're funding. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, it's a, the, the fund and the opportunity is open to any organization, university, other nonprofit individuals, um, anybody who wants an opportunity to, to test their technology out can, can apply um, to participate in, uh, in, in the program um, and potentially um, get, get some funding from the Innovation Fund. Okay, interesting. The... Um... You had also mentioned that the world's largest humanitarian warehouse is in Copenhagen, and that is part, and that there's just very interesting applications, very common technologies that happen as part of all this. Give us an example of that. Yeah, so so uh, in Copenhagen, we have uh, we have a warehouse that uh, is uh, fully automated. It allows us to load a pick, pack, and load a 747 and have it on the ground in an emergency in about 72 hours. Um, and, and we do that through the same technology that any, any other 3PL or any other, you know, uh, e-commerce organization might use for warehouse management systems. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, we use data to also, uh, as, as a lot of companies do, to, to predict what are the supplies we need and what, you know, what to, what to, to fill the supply chain with um, based on time of the year, weather, weather patterns, um, disease patterns, and things of that nature. So we, um, just like a lot of organizations, you know, we, we do a lot of predictive modeling around what to acquire, where to pre-position it, how to get it there the, the, mo- the fastest and most efficient way so that we can be ready when, uh, you know, when the worst happens. Yeah. Are there, when you think of the very leading edge of technology and some technologies that are around now, but um, I've heard them described as technologies in search of a, a, a raison d'etre, essentially like blockchain in some industries. What are the ones that you watch most closely? And do you have anything going on with blockchain? Yeah, blockchain is definitely one of them. You know, uh, when we talk about you know, transporting goods or funds from point A to point B, um, the, the success of that transportation is, is critical because it can mean lives saved. So. The opportunity to use blockchain to have a have an immutable ledger to be able to see that you know the chain of custody for whether it's whether it's funds uh, cryptocurrency um, uh, is, is another place where we're we're, uh, we're making some investment as well. Um, but the idea to get to, to be able to get that item from point A to B uh, and know exactly uh, you know who who had their hands on it, how long it was, if in the case of a vaccine, how long it was uh, perhaps out of a cold storage situation. Um, you know, those sorts of things are really important to us. So, uh, so blockchain is definitely something that we're, we're, uh, we're dabbling in uh, um, pretty significantly. Uh, we've also set up, a, as I said, we set up a cryptocurrency fund where, where folks can actually donate um, Bitcoin and Ether to UNICEF. Um, and we use that uh, currency to then um, acquire goods and services. So it gives the donor the opportunity to see exactly where their contribution is going, which is which is pretty um, pretty unique and pretty revolutionary, and, and I think um, allows us to see the impact, you know, to directly see the impact of, of of those those contributions. Yes, well, and you've got ways that you provide that information now, like you can tell people that donate a hundred dollars exactly what that will buy. Uh, talk a little bit about the technology behind that and how you deliver that information. We so we. Uh, you know, we, we know what it costs to acquire, for example, a ready to eat meal or a case of ready to eat meals. 
Um, and so, you know, we're able to, to, to broadly, you know, share that, you know, $100 donation buys X cases of ready meals. And we know that those save so many lives, which is, which is really, really exciting. Um, but UNICEF recently has created an open data project um, that creates uh, uh, data uh, in data stores that, po that folks can access um, at, at data.unicef.org that allows folks to, um, to see program outcomes. Um, and to uh, look at program effectiveness um, and to use data and to even do their own analysis to be able to, you know, to determine are there better ways to, you know, to, to deliver some of the programs that we do. So um, we, we know that, that um, some of the best ideas are, are, are delivered through the you know, public-private partnerships, and we want to make that data as available as we can um, for the folks who want to help. Okay, and we th when we think about um, all of the different ways that you're using data around the world, it also kind of leads to uh, leads to the uh, to thinking about the way people are able to access data, which of course involves internet access. Uh, you have another important effort underway, the GIGA program. I want you to talk about that a little bit. Uh, what is that exactly? Yeah, GIGA is really exciting. It's another another one of those public-private partnerships. Um, we're we're working with. Uh, with Ericsson, for example, Ericsson Cellular, um, to enable internet access in schools in 10 countries. So, you know, one of the biggest challenges uh, that, that we have, uh, the kids have, one of the, one of the biggest disadvantages they face today is when they don't have internet access. And again, that's been exacerbated by, by COVID because they're, you know, many of them are required to homeschool. Um, and in many of the places we work, you know, simply the internet access simply isn't there. So the idea behind Giga Mm -hmm. is, to, is to quite literally map um, every school in a country and identify their, their proximity to internet access. And for those schools that don't have internet access um, is to work with the providers in the region to get them that internet access because that gives them access to, you know, to a whole host of oper educational opportunities, which they just don't have. And again, um, becomes even more important in this era of COVID um, to be able to map, uh, you know, to enable communities to have internet access to those educational platforms. How much have you been able, how far along are you with the project? What have you been able to accomplish so far? And how much farther do you need to go? But, you know, there's a, you know, there's a long way to go, but a lot of progress has been made so far in the mapping aspects of it. So we're able to do geospatial mapping um, to understand where uh, where uh, the internet access points are relative to the schools and the villages. Um, so we're in that stage right now, but we have uh, we have some partners that are lined up with us. Erickson, Erickson being one of them that's committed to helping us in ten countries um, build that internet access, which is really exciting. Okay, good. Let us uh, let's segue to the, um, the 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 final things I always ask about on these um, on these shows is about leadership lessons and things that you have learned as you have uh, gone through your career, balancing all the different competing demands on your role. And of course, you have a very unique experience having gone from the commercial sector into nonprofits. It's like going from private enterprise into government or non-governmental roles. Um, what has managing through the crisis of the last six months taught you about your role as a leader? We'll, we'll just start with that. You know, I think um, relation, what I've learned is that relationships matter. Relationships really matter. Um, the, the time and effort that, uh, that you put into building the relationships with your, with your partners, with your vendors, um, with your staff, your business partners, 
um, really, really pays dividends when you're in a crisis situation because you're forced to make decisions quickly um, and you're forced to come together and sort of, you know, push away all of the other baggage that, that often comes with these decisions um, and, and really get to the core and make those decisions. And, and I think um, you, having those relationships in place with my team has allowed me to, to have great trust in the things that they're, you know, that they're telling me that we need to do and that we want to do um, uh, allows me to have, you know, great trust in my vendors. As I said, we delivered two enterprise class projects um, in the middle of this pandemic. Um, it, it's allowed, I, and I think it's allowed my partners on the leadership team to have trust in me that I was going to make the decisions that were going to keep us running through this pandemic. Um, so, so if anything, and it's something that I learned early on in my career, I've had some, so I've worked for some great CIOs and had some great mentors. And uh, it's, it's something that I learned very, on, very early on was that building those relationships was, was critically important. And, and as I said earlier, I think that's the thing that we're going to be most challenged by in this remote situation is having that ability to, you know, to foster those relationships and build those relationships that in, in a way that we were able to when we could get together. Yeah. Well, I think at one point when we were uh, getting ready for this conversation today, you essentially said the technology will sort itself out. The rest of it is all about the relationships and the trust. Uh, you said something else as well, that knowing your business and your markets at a very deep, and maybe that's one of those leadership tenets that goes without saying these days. But it's. I wondered how, when you moved over from three decades in the commercial private enterprise space into the nonprofit space, what were the sort of things you had to learn? How did you help yourself make a successful transition? Well, I, you know, I was excited by the opportunity to, to do this work. My, my wife and I had traveled around the world and had seen UNICEF and these other organizations uh, at, at work. And so um, when the opportunity came, you know, I, 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 I was just thrilled. And, and I just started calling everybody I know who might have had some business in this nonprofit space or had done business with UNICEF or, or any of the other organizations to really understand what that space was all about and what, you know, what, um, what made it successful and what technology could do. Um, and then when I got on board, uh, I, I talked to everybody that I could in our organization uh, about the work they do and, and what's important to them and how they operate. And, and, um, and, 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 you know, and often in the nonprofit spaces, what I found was that organizations aren't always great about investing in themselves. Um, because of course, you know, the, every dollar you, you spend on yourself, you don't spend on your cause, which, which is, you know, always an important consideration, but at the same time, it's important to continue to invest in yourself so you can deliver the results that, that you need to, that are, that are so important. And so I really wanted to understand, um, why some of the decisions might have been made in the past to, you know, to, uh, to invest or not invest, um, only as a guide to, to, to understand how I could make sure we were going to make the right investments. And, and the staff was amazing. They, you know, they, they opened their doors and, and uh, you know, many, many lunches and coffees uh, later. Um, you know, I felt like I, I, fe I felt like I had a reasonable understanding of how the organization works, but there's always something new to learn. Was there anything really fundamentally different about being in the nonprofit space versus the private enterprise? Because many of the CIOs tuning into this or listening probably haven't experienced that and might wonder what that's like. Well, you have the same challenges. You have, you have budgets uh, that aren't big enough. 
Um, you have, you know, you have um, business opportunities that are coming faster than you can be ready for it. Um, so all of those things remain. It doesn't, you know, that doesn't change um, in, in the nonprofit sector. Um, but the decision making is a lot more clear. There's a lot more clarity um, in that uh, we all know we all know why we're here. We all know what the decision is going to lead to, and that's an outcome for kids. And so that's a lot easier um, to get to the decision point whenever that's the mindset. Um, you're not you're not working for 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 Wall Street. You're not working for um, somebody else's opportunity. It's really about the mission, and that makes that creates a lot of clarity in the decision making. That is that is often that clarity is often my experience anyway is often missing in the, in the commercial sector. That's a, that is a really great point, and I think very well expressed as well. I know a lot of CIOs struggle with that, trying to make the IT organization feel more connected to the business mission of the company, because they, that there's always that problem about IT being seen as just an enabling island off to the side somewhere. So that's uh, that part of it has obviously been um, a lot more rewarding for you at UNICEF USA. Thank you so much for joining us today. It was really great having you on the show. Um, I want to encourage our audience to, if you joined us late here, don't despair. You can watch the full episode today later on CIO.com or on YouTube. And please take a moment to subscribe to the YouTube channel called IDG Tech Talk. You'll find all of the 50-something uh, video shows and podcasts that we've done previously with other prominent CIOs in the industry. I hope you enjoyed today's conversation as much as I did with CIO. Andy Rhodes of UNICEF USA, and that you'll join me for our next episode of Leadership Live in two weeks. I'll be back on Wednesday, November 4th at noon Eastern, and I'll be joined by CIO Steve Haindel of Holman Enterprises, which is a leader in the automotive industry. Thanks so much for tuning in today. Thanks so much to our guest, Andy Rhodes. And a special thanks to all of my colleagues at CIO.com and the CIO Executive Council for their sponsorship of this program. Stay safe and well out there, and we'll see you back here next time. This podcast is produced by IDG Communications Incorporated.